If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. We have basically three lessons and a sermon to finish up our study of the confession that's been going on now for three years. The sermon will not be from the confession, it will be from First Thessalonians 4 on the Lord's Day, but it seems to be a fitting way to end our study because how does our confession end? Come Lord Jesus, even so come. Come quickly. So you're in the Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants, things which must shortly take place. And He sent and signified it by His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that He saw. Skip down to verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, you know what happens next. In verses in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates seven letters to John, who's basically acting as his stenographer, to the seven churches that he's just mentioned. What I'm going to do is read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the, the letter to Ephesus, as an example of the other letters, because they all follow the same exact form. And we're going to consider that tonight. But notice verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, as always, we need the Spirit of God to be poured out through the merits of Christ to open our eyes and to see things that perhaps, perhaps we've never seen before. But Lord, I pray that you will use this time to edify us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to convict us uh, as we seek to serve you and follow you faithfully, even to be an overcomer, as the Word of God calls us to be in this present age. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past several months, I've been exploring the subject of eschatology because the last two chapters of our confession deal with that subject. And since we really, have, most of us don't have a place to hang that, we have been working through the various questions of how do we approach the Bible's teaching on the subject of the end times and specifically of the second coming of Christ. And I've taught you that 90% of any theological issue or controversy really comes down to knowing what the questions are. And if you know what the questions are, then you can begin to work through them and process them and find what points of agreement are there between various schools of thought and what are the points, exact points of departure. So thus far, we've worked through our first 11 of 14 questions. Uh, the first one was this, what fundamental truths about eschatology are non-negotiable if you are to stay within the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith? Secondly, what are the five different millennial views that are held by Christians who are within the boundaries of fundamental eschatology? Third, which of these five millennial views are inside the boundaries of full subscription to our confession and which ones are outside of it? Fourth, how many peoples of God are there? How many returns of Christ will there be? Sixth, is the tribulation Jesus speaks of in his Olivet Discourse a past or a future event? Seventh, is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day? Or is his second coming going to occur on the last hour of the last day of this present age? Eighth, how many future bodily resurrections will there be? Nine, how many future judgments will there be? The tenth is, will humans continue to be born and to die after Jesus' second coming? And the eleventh is, can men continue to be born again after Jesus' second coming? And I went through and showed you what my personal answers are as I have searched the scriptures. And I tried to show you from the word of God itself where I, where I was coming from. That leaves us with three more questions. And it will take us the next three weeks, tonight, next Wednesday, and the Wednesday after that, to answer these three questions. For tonight and, tomorrow, and, and next Wednesday, I want to ask the question and seek to answer it. What is the relevance of the book of the Revelation for Christians today? The next question then will be, what are the four different views of the Revelation held by Orthodox Christians? And then 14th question is, what is the nature of the millennium spoken of in Revelation 21 through 15? But our focus for tonight, and God willing for next Wednesday night, is what is the relevance of the Revelation to Christians today? Now, show of hands, be honest with me. How many of you sometimes struggle to be fed and nourished in your soul when you read the book of Revelation? Because it perplexes you. You look at it and you wonder, what does this all mean? And what does this have to do with me? I'm not going to get into the four different views of the Revelation tonight, but I do want to just go ahead and mention this. The view that you've probably been taught is known as the futurist view. And there are good and godly men who hold the futurist view. Basically, anyone who holds to any form of premillennialism is a futurist when it comes to the book of the Revelation. For the dispensationalist, when you get to Revelation 4.1, John is caught up into heaven, and many a dispensationalist interprets that as John being symbolic of the entire church, and that this is 
this is the entire church being raptured out before the seven-year tri- tribulation commences. Then everything from chapter 4 to chapter 19, according to these brothers, is the description of the seven-year tribulation with the beast rising up in uh, chapter 13 being the eschatological antichrist. Uh, at the end of that tribulation period, and remember there's three sets of seven. There's the breaking of the three uh, or of the seven seals uh, by, the, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He breaks each of the seals, and as each of the seals breaks, another plague falls upon earth, temporal plagues. That's followed by seven trumpets blown by angels. Seven plagues take place with each blowing of the trumpet. And then there's finally the pouring out of the bowls of wrath, the seven bowls of wrath. So it's almost like all the stuff that happened in the plagues against Egypt in Moses' day repeated on a worldwide scale in our future. That's the kind of thinking. Then according to this mentality, Jesus comes back visibly at the end of that seven-year period, begins a earthly millennial reign that culminates in a a last effort to rebel against God, which is quashed, and then the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. Well, that's the futurist view. Because I'm not a premillennialist, you probably already figured out I'm not a futurist. Uh, for those of you who are no such things, my view would probably be more of a mix of partial preterism and what is known as an idealist view, kind of a mix of those two things, which we'll get into in a few weeks. But what bothers me tonight, and the reason I mentioned the futurist view tonight, is there's a question that comes to my mind when I wrestle through this, this particular view. And it is that John had a specific audience, a first century audience, of seven literal churches in Asia Minor. That was who he was writing to. How does what he's writing about have any relevance to those people who have been dead for 2,000 years? In other words, notice that chapter 1 Uh, verse 2, or look at verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly or quickly take place. Something that's on your immediate horizon. Something that's just around the corner for you. Something's coming, and I've been sent to tell you what that thing is. It doesn't make sense if suddenly the church is raptured out why any of this would really have a whole lot of relevance to them at the time. So let me make two basic assertions. What what I'm going to say is, first of all, I don't understand the revelation, first of all. I want you to understand that. My views are subject to change on it because you've never heard me preach. You may have heard me preach a sermon or two from it, but never the whole thing. I'm confident that I could preach chapters 1 through 3, or actually 1 through 5, and then I'd have to skip ahead and go to chapters 21 and 22. It's, it's really chapters 6 through 19 that, or through 20 that I'm still perplexed by in so many ways. It's like that stuff in the middle. But I do think that it is helpful with the revelation if you can at least get the forest, not miss the forest for the trees. Get what the central point is. And if you can come away with what the central point is, some, suddenly things are going to open up for you that you go, hey... This has relevance to me as a 21st century Christian. Um, and not by you know, figuring out who the Antichrist is going to be, you know, whether it's the next elected president or something like that. So I want to make two basic assertions here, and then we're going to dive in. First of all, the book of Revelation is a local church-centered document. It's written to local churches. It's written for local churches. 
as we'll see in just a moment, I believe that its central theme is hope for persecuted saints. Now, the pre-trib rapture kind of blows out of the water, doesn't it? Takes away the hope because you're not persecuted. You're saved, delivered from persecution. No, instead, this is meant to give hope to people going through tribulation, going through hardship. The second observation, if you ever thought about this, Revelation is a book about worship. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, do you realize that no other book talks about the worship of God more than the book of the Revelation? And as a matter of fact, if you ever thought about it, a number of our most beloved hymns come from the book of the Revelation. For example, Holy, Holy, Holy comes from Revelation 4. Uh, or how about one of, what I consider one of the greatest praise songs of all time, the Alleluia Chorus. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's language borrowed from the Revelation. So, when you start thinking about that, what I want to give you tonight and next uh, Wednesday night is regardless of what view you take of the Revelation, things that I think you can say, we can take that to the bank. And these are things that we can that can edify our souls and fortify us when we're going through hard times and we're going through persecution. So what I want to do tonight is, first of all, give you four observations regarding the background of the Revelation. And then secondly, I want to give you eight observations about the seven letters. God willing, next week I'm going to come back to Roman numeral three. Roman numeral three will be seven encouragements for persecuted churches that we can derive from this book. So the first thing then is four observations regarding the background of Revelation. The first one is this. The original audience to whom the Revelation was sent were the seven local churches that existed in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, in the first century A.D. Do you know when these churches were planted? The Apostle Paul planted the church in Ephesus during his third and final missionary journey. There are seven churches in Asia Minor beginning with the, the port city of Ephesus, okay, which was on the Aegean Sea, the western coast of what is now Turkey. And so he planted Ephesus, but do you realize he did not plant all the other churches? Do you know who planted the other churches? The church in Ephesus did. In other words, it is Paul and Timothy who raised up and trained elders inside that local church. And their mission was to make the church self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating, that is, self-reproducing. That their job was then, as God raised up godly men, to send them out into other parts of their surrounding area, that is, to do domestic church planting, to go to other cities to preach the gospel, and as sinners were converted, to establish local churches there. And the reality is, though there are seven letters, do you realize, actually in Asia Minor, there were eight local churches. Does anyone know what the eighth church was? Colossae. Laodicea and Colossae were neighbors. They were right beside one another. You remember when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Colossae? At the end of it, he says, make sure you read the letter that I sent to Laodicea and make sure that the letter I'm sending to you gets sent to Laodicea. So there were actually eight specific churches. You might say there was an association of confessional Baptist churches in Asia Minor. Okay, not really. But, uh, okay, but, but there were, they, they had communion with one another. They fellowshiped with one another as churches. They knew of each other. But here was the idea. The missionary goes and plants the church, and then that church begins planting other churches and over and over again. Now, I, I emphasize that for a reason. If this is God's will for each local church, what is God's will for Berean Baptist Church? 
but to have the same vision, which we are praying for and praying towards that in the years to come as he builds up a base of plurality of elders and deacons, continues building up that base, continue praying for men, continue training men, and as time comes up and as the Lord raises up men to send those men out to plant other churches, whether it's domestic or in a foreign context. The second thing about this then is that the things that John wrote had an immediate application to these seven local churches in the first century A.D., Jesus was preparing them to face intense persecution from the world. I hope that this is obvious, but John was not writing to tell these seven churches that the Antichrist was going to be the President of the United States who's going to be elected in 2024. Okay, But don't be surprised when you're on social media and you see that very kind of thing being popped up and said. That is not at all what was going on. These churches were already being persecuted and an even more intense wave of persecution was about to come to them. And Jesus was preparing them for it. So the ascended glorified Christ is dictating these seven letters to warn them, to encourage them, to rebuke them as needed, to prepare them and get them ready for what's coming. Because some of them weren't ready. And so he's strengthening them in such a way that they will. Third is the way that Jesus prepared them is hinted at in the title the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a pet peeve with me. Ever, anybody call this, ever heard somebody call this the book of the revelations? That drives me nuts. It's not the revelations, plural. It's the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. And I believe you can take this in two different senses because the word revelation means unveiling, to uncover or unveil. You ever see how like a, an artist will take a, a block of marble? He'll take a hammer and chisel and he'll carve it into a beautiful statue. And then there comes a time when it's going to be publicly unveiled. And if you go to the public unveiling, what happens? When you go there, there's a cover. There's a tarp over it. And you can't see what's underneath it. And they come together, and at just the right moment, they yank the veil off, and suddenly it is revealed. It is unveiled what the statue is. Now, I want you to understand, you can take this term, the revelation of Jesus Christ, in two different senses. Number one, it's the revelation that comes from Christ. But secondly, and I want you to get this, it's the revelation of Christ. The center point is to reveal who Jesus is. That is the center point. It's not radical conspiracy theories about the future Antichrist. It's to reveal who Jesus Christ is and to remind the churches of who he is. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that the centerpiece of the entire book is found in chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Uh, I'm tempted to reread it. I won't. But you remember what happens here. John hears a voice. It says, write these things to these seven churches. And John turns around to see who's talking to him. And he sees Jesus Christ standing there in ascended glory. And it's so terrifying that what's John do? He faints and becomes a dead man. Now, I want to point something out to you here. Something that's very important. John was familiar with who Jesus was. He was the one who leaned against Jesus' breast. At the, uh, at the night that he was betrayed. He was one of three witnesses who saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And you remember that the, the apostles were terrified when they saw that. Peter's like, um, should we build a shelter for each of you? Because he didn't know what to say. Somebody will say something, so Peter obviously should say it. But they were terrified. They were quaking in fear, and they fell flat on their faces in fright. Well, here's John seeing that same Jesus... And yet when he sees him here, something is even more terrifying and more intense than anything he ever saw before because this time it actually knocks him off his feet. It knocks the wind out of him to the point that he's fainted and becomes as a dead man. 
But the, this is the same Jesus is very obvious because he reaches his nail-scarred hand out and touches John and says, do not be afraid. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's exactly what he did when he stilled the storm and when he came in and walked on the water and those kinds of things. Don't be afraid. It's me. Here he condescends to touch his frightened apostle. But I would, I, I'm telling you right now, that is the centerpiece of what's going on in this book. What he's saying to the churches, so we're going to see this in the letters because he refers to this vision every time he writes a letter. All seven of them, he says, this is who I am. What he's saying to the churches is, don't forget who I am. And why is that important? I'm going to elaborate on this in a little bit more, but you great commission students heard this before. He's elaborating on because when you're going through persecution, when you're being persecuted for the word, when you're being persecuted for being obedient to the Lord, you have to remember who Jesus is because you've got to remember that he's worth it. And that's what he's saying. Remember who I am. He's going to just put that front and center. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to endure. Fourth thing. The Revelation was written and transmitted as a secular letter to the seven churches. Now, I know some of you were happy when you graduated from high school and didn't have to take any more geography. But I'm going to have to give you a geography lesson for just a minute. Okay? The island of Patmos, where John was writing from, was a small island in the Aegean Sea. It's still there. In the first century AD, it was a labor camp. John was in prison there because he had preached the gospel. And you understand, he wasn't just exiled and sitting around with all kinds of time on his hands and lots of time to write and stuff like that, or to you know, do his hobbies or whatever. No, this was a prison camp. There was a rock quarry there. You had to go and work in hard labor in the mines. That's what he's having to do. So he's being put to hard labor, forced labor, uh, as punishment for being faithful to Christ. Well, the original scroll that he wrote down upon, in order for it to get from Patmos to the churches in Asia Minor, it had to cross the sea. In other words, that scroll was taken by a messenger who rode across the sea, came to the port city of Ephesus. And once it arrived at Ephesus, it would be read out loud to the church in Ephesus. Have you ever noticed uh, verse 3 of chapter 1? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Sometimes we interpret that as, oh, wow, I'm blessed if I read this in my personal Bible reading, right? Well, there's truth in that, but if you notice, that's not what John's referring to. John is referring to the public reading of Scripture. Blessed is he who reads, the one who stands behind the lectern and reads, and those who hear as the one is reading. So this is talking about being publicly read before the entire church. Well, once it was read, the entire all 22 chapters were read to the church at Ephesus, a messenger had to go from Ephesus to the next church, which was Smyrna. And they would read it there. Then a messenger would be sent from Smyrna, and he would take it to the next church, which was Pergamos. Then to Thyatira, then to Sardis, then to Philadelphia, and then finally to Laodicea. In other words, the order that Jesus gives in verse 11 of chapter 1, and then the order of the letters he gives in chapter 2 and chapter 3, is the letter in which they would have been trans- that was the order in which it would have been transmitted as the messengers went from church to church. Now that's going to become significant later. Bear it in mind now. Um, But before we press on to our next heading, let me just pause here and say, I've often wondered if Jesus dictated a letter to Berean Baptist Church of Hiram, Georgia, what would he say? What would he commend? What would he rebuke? What things would he say are pleasing to him? What things would he say are displeasing to him? Because that's exactly what he's doing here. And I say that to say, I've been caused to tremble many times. 
and to cry out to God to say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Please, don't remove your lampstand from us. And if Lord, if there's something where we're erring, something where we're displeasing you, would you please show us so that we can walk in a way that is pleasing you? But whatever you do, please, don't remove your lampstand from us. It's a sobering thing to have Jesus speak to you the way that he spoke to these, uh, these churches. So that leads us then, after considering the background of the Revelation, to eight observations about the seven letters. When you look at the seven letters, they all follow a, a pattern. They all follow the same pattern, even though the content is very, very different. So let me take you through these eight things. I'll put them in your notes if you have them. But the first thing is this, and it's full of comfort. Jesus addresses each local church by name. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the angel may have been the pastor, may have been the, the messenger, because the term angel means messenger, may have been the, the messenger who was carrying the letter. But whatever the case, he's addressing each church by name. Each church is referred to as a lampstand, a candlestick. True local churches who believe and preach apostolic doctrine in the power of the Holy Spirit are established by Jesus Christ himself to shine the light of God's revealed truth in the midst of the spiritual darkness of their own culture, their own town, their own locality. And Jesus, this should be comforting to you, he knows of the existence of every single church. Whether it's big, whether it's small, whether it's strong, whether it's weak, whether the congregation assembles in a large cathedral, or whether because of persecution they have to meet in a cave. Doesn't matter, Jesus knows. He knows those churches that are pure and holy. He knows those churches that are impure due to compromise. He knows the churches, he knows their condition. But the point I want you to see is that none is forgotten. Jesus knows about all of them, and he cares about all of them. And that includes, I might add, a small but valuable congregation that assembles in Hiram, Georgia, called Berean Baptist Church. Jesus knows us by name. And he's no absentee Lord. He knows everything about us. He knows every individual member. He knows every regular tender. He knows everything that's going on with us. And he is walking among us. And he's working in our midst. That's a comfort to me. Secondly, after each introduction, Jesus always tells the church something specific about himself. Remember what I just told you that the vision of chapter 1 that John saw is the central centerpiece of the entire book, do you notice that he begins every single letter by referring to something in that vision? Ephesians chapter 2, or excuse me, Romans Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to Ephesus, he says, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. To Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Chapter 2, verse 12, to Pergamos, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, the one proceeding from his mouth in the vision, if you remember. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18, to Thyatira, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Chapter 3, verse 1, to Sardis, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Chapter 3, verse 7, to Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Finally, chapter 3, verse 14, to Laodicea. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He's referring them to the vision that John saw. What's he saying? He's saying, 
Remember who I am. Remember that I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the nations that are persecuting you, they're dropping the bucket to me because I'm sovereign over all of them. Nothing can happen to you without my permission. Nothing can happen to you that I don't know about. And I am the victor and you're going to walk in victory with me. Um, In other words, remember who I am and never forget it while you're being persecuted. Because remember that I'm worth it. Told a story in the Great Commission class. It's worth retelling here because uh, not all of you were there. But uh, John MacArthur a few years ago had a young lady, and that was in his college that he was president of, of, and she had been converted out of a Muslim family from a different country. She went home on Christmas break to be with her family, and her uncle, who was a militant Muslim, got wind that she was coming home. So he hid behind the door of her father's house, and when she came in, nobody else was there but the uncle. And as soon as she closed the door, the uncle took a chair and started beating her, trying to kill her. Thankfully, her father arrived about that time, saw what was happening, got the chair out of his brother's hand, sent him out the door, grabbed his daughter, put her in the car, still bleeding, took her straight to the, back to the airport and said, Honey, I love you, but you can't come back here because my family will kill you. So they put her back on a plane. She flew straight back to California. John MacArthur, of course, heard about what had happened. He went to have the, to talk to the girl and ask her how she was doing and check on her. And he asked her the question. He said, what went through your mind when your uncle was trying to kill you? And she looked at him and said, what went through my mind was my father, or excuse me, my uncle, has a God that he's willing to kill me for. But I have a God that I'm willing to die for. And brothers and sisters, I believe that's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. With each letter, he's saying, first of all, remember, church, who I am. And don't you ever forget it. Because otherwise, you're going to throw in the towel and say, let's forget it. Let's, let's, let's renounce the faith because this just isn't worth it. But when you remember how worthy I am, then you understand that I'm worth losing everything just to know me. So be faithful me unto death and you will receive the crown of life. That's what he's saying here. The third thing, then, is that Jesus always describes the condition... Well, sorry, let me go back to the second observation real quick. Something I want to leave out. Not only does he say, remember who I am, he says, these things says he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Seven local churches, seven different lampstands, but there's only one Lord. Only one Lord, the same Lord walking among them. So that we're one of those lampstands now as a church. And so we are one of those among whom Jesus walks, along with our sister churches of like precious faith. So that hints at the fact, and I'm going to come back to later, that we are interconnected to sister churches of like precious faith. That's important. Okay, so the third thing then, Jesus always describes the condition of each local church. Some he commends, others he rebukes. Most of them he gives a little bit of both. Right? Um, Smyrna interestingly enough, is the one, one of the churches that he doesn't rebuke at all. He doesn't get, get, add any more burdens to them, doesn't rebuke them for anything. All he does is commend them. Now that's amazing because Smyrna was the poorest of all the churches in Asia Minor. They were known for their poverty. They didn't have a whole lot of wealth. And yet Jesus tells them, I know you're poor, but you are rich. You're poor in outward things, poor in material goods, but you're rich in the things that matter. Rich in spiritual things. Interesting enough, which is the church that he rebukes the the most harshly? The richest. Laodicea. 
Laodicea, he rebukes them and says, I know that you're rich. He says just the opposite thing to them that he says to Smyrna. I know that you're rich, but you don't realize how poor you are. So purchase ISAF from me so you can see your true condition. Because you may be rich outwardly, but inwardly speaking, you are impoverished. As a matter of fact, if you don't repent, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You make me want to throw up, is what Jesus is saying. Uh, so to Smyrna, he says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. To Laodicea, I know you're rich, but you're poor. This should tell us that Jesus doesn't judge by outward appearance. Uh, some years ago, I was doing some work for a fellow who was a member of a church, and I knew of this church, and it's a good church. But I asked the man, how's the church going? And I was very disappointed by his answer. He says, oh, God is blessing us so much. We have so much money that we don't know what to do with it. Now, it is a blessing when the Lord provides the monies. For example, the, the fact that God is providing for us so that we can build a new meeting location and things like that. We praise God for that. Those blessings do come from the Lord. What concerned me was that that was what this man immediately thought of when I asked the question. That wasn't really what I meant. How are they doing spiritually? That was my question. But his response was, well, God's blessing us so much. We, are, we have so much money, we don't know what to do with it. I bit my tongue really hard, but I'll tell you what I wanted to say. I said, well, that's exactly what the Laodiceans said. And yet Jesus, you know, look at our own affluent culture. Evangelicals may, may be tempted to evaluate the health of a church by how big its buildings are, how many programs it has, um, how big their budgets may be, how many staff members they have. Jesus doesn't look at those things and say those are a mark of progress. He looks in a very different way. And that should be an encouragement to us, but also something of rebuke as well. Um, and Smyrna and Laodicea were the polar opposite extremes. Ephesus was kind of in the middle. Notice what Jesus, he gives them a mixture of encouragement and rebuke in chapter 2, verses 2 to 6. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That's the commendation. Then he says this, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there's encouragement, there's also reproof, and that's typical of most of the churches here. But don't miss the point. Jesus was intimately acquainted with the church. He knew what was going on in each church, and he knew what was going on with the individual members of the church. For example, when he speaks to uh, the church of Pergamos in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he speaks of one of their members by name. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Can you imagine going to church and here's this brother who's been so faithful and so godly and you get to fellowship with him throughout the week and on the Lord's Day and then you come to church and Antipas' seat is empty because he's been killed. He's been martyred. And Jesus writes to you and says, Oh yeah, I know Antipas. My faithful martyr. He's with me. He's okay. Everything's right. Good with him. But he knows the individual members. Doesn't that comfort you when you think about our church? Jesus knows about each individual family's struggles, each individual person's burdens, each individual person's sins and triumphs. 
You know, there are times I've prayed over the years, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing with your church, but I'm very grateful that you do. And that's what this text is telling us. Fourth, Jesus always gives specific instructions about what each church must do. Consider his words in, to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's very interesting that Jesus expected immediate obedience. Repent quickly or I'll come remove my lampstand quickly. In other words, this is not a democracy. This is not a republic. This is a monarchy. And King Jesus rules in his church. And when he speaks, he expects to be obeyed. Um, He says, if you don't obey, if you don't repent and do the first works, I will come quickly and remove my lampstand from you. In other words, the glory will depart from you. And the word Ichabod will be placed over your door. No glory, because the glory has departed. But his instructions weren't always negative. They were all, sometimes they were positive. The same Jesus who rebuked Ephesus comforted Smyrna. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Remember what I told you? A greater wave of persecution was coming. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to Smyrna right here? What's he tell them? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He comforts them. He encourages them. He strengthens them for the coming trials. So, And something else we should note. Even when Jesus gives scathing rebukes, particularly like you look at Laodicea, I mean, he just does not spare but after he has blistered their hides with his words. Do you hear what he says? Chapter 3, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I haven't told you this out of malice. I haven't told you these things because I hate your guts. I've told you these things, hard things, because I love you so much. And because I love you so much, please be zealous and repent. In obedience to the Great Commission, we are commanded to teach Christ's disciples to observe all things whatsoever He has commanded them to do. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You are, I'm your Lord. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, obey me. It brings, brings us to number five. As He brings each letter to a close, Jesus always exhorts each local church to hear. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And obviously Jesus means more than, okay, when, when you hear the voice, my voice coming off my vocal cords and the sound waves hit your eardrums, make sure your eardrums are vibrating. When he says hear, what he's saying, hear in such a way that you submit yourself to what I'm saying and you walk in obedience to it. That you be effectual doers of the word. That's the one who really hears the word. Make sure you're listening. And that brings me quickly to the sixth observation. Have you ever noticed this? Whatever Jesus says to each church... The Father and the Spirit are also saying the same thing to the church. And you say, where do you get that? You notice each letter begins with the second person of the Godhead identifying himself. This says he who holds the seven stars in his hand. Thus says he who has died and lives again. Have you ever noticed how it ends? Each letter ends with the same phrase. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit Spirit says to the churches. Wait a minute. Hold, hold, hold on a minute. The second person of the Godhead identified himself at the beginning, and then he says, listen to what the third person of the Godhead is telling you. 
Why? Because the, 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 what we call the very word of God, and it is the very word of God, the Bible, isn't just the word of Jesus. It's the word of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons who share the same indivisible essence and therefore are one God. But, it's, but when you speak of the word of the Father, the word of the Father is the word of the Son. And it is the, the word of the Father and the Son is the word of the Spirit. And I say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I didn't see God the Father in there. You haven't looked. That's why. Because five different times God the Father is spoken of, at least in the first three chapters. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus has made his kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus quotes Psalm 2. It says, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as also I have received from my Father. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in my white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Chapter 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. In other words, here's the point. This is the doctrine of what's known as inseparable operations. That no person of the Godhead operates exclusive to the exclusion of the other two. What the Father Son is what the, is what the Son says is what the Spirit of God says. This is the triune God speaking to his people. Brothers and sisters, how important is that? How important is it for us to remember who our God is? Because we are monotheists, but we're not monotheists like the Jews, and we're not monotheists like the, like the Muslims, and we're not monotheists like the Jehovah's Witnesses are. We are monotheists who believe in only one God, but we believe that one God exists in three persons. And it's not that the Father shares one-third of the Godhead, and then the Son has another third, and the Spirit has another third. Each of the persons has all the, God, all the essence completely, indivisible and undivided. So that there's only one God. That's so important for us to never forget. Because we need to remember who it is we're worshiping and who it is we're serving. And who it is that's speaking to the churches. Seventh observation. What Jesus says to one church, he says to all the churches. Again, he begins each letter to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Thyatira, to the church of Smyrna, etc., and then, when he gets to the end, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Is that what he says? No. He says, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice what he says to one church, he says to all churches. So that we are to learn from what God is doing in other churches. Um, remember what I said at the beginning about the geography? And how you have all of these uh, seven churches and they receive it in a, the, the letter in a certain order. Do you realize that, that means, first of all, the churches had to communicate with one another by sending messengers back and forth from one another. But it also implies they had some kind of formal communion with one another in Asia Minor. And remember the words of Paul, the letter that you've received in Colossae. Send that over to Laodicea. Get the one from Laodicea. Read it in your church. There's some important implications to be drawn from all of that. Each church needed to learn lessons from what Jesus was doing in their sister churches and what he was saying to their sister churches. And do you realize Jesus quite literally allowed all the churches to read one another's mail? Let me put this in perspective for you. Imagine you're a member in the church of Laodicea. 
the church that Jesus completely rebukes. You get the letter. And as you read it out loud, and you come to the part where he tells you what he thinks about Laodicea, which basically is this, and I mean this reverently, you make me want to puke. I mean, that's basically the essence. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth if you don't repent. You suddenly realize that your first six sister churches have already read what Jesus says about you. And if you tell somebody, oh, I'm from the church in Laodicea, oh, you're that one that Jesus said he wants to vomit out of his mouth. You're, You're for that church. How humbling would that be, for one thing, but also, how would that practically serve? It would serve as a way of praying for one another. Here's what's going on in the other churches, and here's how we can be praying for our sister churches and be concerned for them. It would act as as something of a prayer letter. More about that in just a moment. Let me get to my eighth observation, then we'll make some applications. The eighth eighth observation is this. Jesus ends each letter by giving hope to each church member if they will persevere to the end. That's how every single one of them ends. Remember how each letter begins by referring to the vision John saw in Revelation 1? Almost all of the seven letters end by making a reference to the last three chapters of the Revelation, which when John was writing this hadn't even been written yet. But Jesus knows what it's going to say, and so he points them to those things so that when they get to the last few chapters about the new heaven and new earth, they're going to go, oh, that's what he was referring to. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Chapter 2, verse 7. Ephesus, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It's pointing to Revelation chapter 22, verses 2 and 14. Chapter 2, verse 11, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That's speaking of hell, which is referred to in Revelation 20, verse 6 and verse 14, and in chapter 21, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 17, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now there's no reference specifically in the latter chapters, but it's clear, even when there's no specific reference, that what he's talking about in the age to come, this is what's going to happen if you overcome. Um, when you come to verse chapter 3, verse 5, uh, sorry, sorry, I missed one. Two, chapter 2, verses 26 to 28. He who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give the power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's a reference to Revelation 19, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 12, He who overcomes, I will give him, make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. That's referring to chapter 21, verse 2, chapter 22, verse 4. Then 3, verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with him, sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, why have I taken the time to show you these references? What's the point? You're going through persecution in this present age. What's the one thing that sustains you most when you're going through persecution? It's keeping your eyes fixed upon the glorious hope of Christ's second coming and the age that is to come. If you are faithful and endure in this present age, great rewards await you that can never be eaten by moth, can never be destroyed, never be stolen in the age to come. That's why he ends by pointing them, listen to what I'm saying. Repent, do the first works, endure, persevere, 
Keep on going. Don't stop. This is momentary light affliction. Can't be compared with the greater weight of glory that is going to be revealed. That's what he's saying to them. To remind them it is worth it. I am worth it and the rewards are worth it. Now, what great help to churches that are about to go through intense persecution. Well, next week, God willing, I want to talk to you about seven encouragements for persecuted saints. But I want to make three applications right now and then we'll take some questions and comments. First, the Lord Jesus knows our local church by name and is actively walking among us and working in our midst. He knows our strengths. He knows our many weaknesses. He's aware of our struggles and our hardships. He knows each one of you by name. He rebukes you and me when we need it. But he also encourages us and reminds us of his promises when we need it. Even when he chastens us, he does so because he delights in us as a father does his son. But he's not only a God who rebukes and chastens, he's a a God who encourages. When my countenance is fallen and I'm so discouraged and depressed that I can't lift up my own head and I have no strength to raise my own head, the Bible calls God the lifter of my head. The God who's able to lift my head and get my eyes back on Jesus even when I don't have the strength to get my own eyes on Jesus. And so do we not find him comforting the churches? Even some of the churches he rebukes, he still comforts and reminds them that he loves them. Secondly, the Lord Jesus desires for us to be prayerfully concerned about what's going on in our sister churches. Uh, As I already mentioned, these seven letters would have served as a prayer sheet for the churches to pray for one another. I don't know what your experience was if you grew up in church, but how many of you in growing up in church found that your church regularly prayed for other churches? The churches I grew up did not. In fact, in some ways, you'd wonder if there were any other churches in existence. Because what was prayed about was just what was going on in the four walls of our sanctuary. Rarely, if ever, did we pray for any other sister church. We prayed for missionaries sometimes, but even there, it was kind of nonspecific. God bless so-and-so as he labors in so-and-so, and that's about it. Nothing specific, no one really knowing what's going on on the mission field at all. Is that the New Testament norm? What we've seen tonight is absolutely not. And I thank God for practical structure of an association of churches. Not that our sphere that we pray for should be limited to the 13 churches in our association. That's not what I mean. But it is a real joy to know these brothers, to have preached in their midst, to know something about their congregations, to have communication with their pastors and know what kind of struggles they're going through and what kind of joys and triumphs. We call each other up when someone's been converted and rejoice together and weep. And sometimes we call each other and weep and you know, say, I'm ready to quit because things are so hard right now in the ministry. But to have that ability to know these brothers. And then even, this sounds like a small thing. I think Matt's going to agree that it's not a small thing. The ability to go to another church and say, Berean Baptist Church sends their greetings to you. Am I right? And Matt did that with the church he preached in a few weeks ago. And he said, as soon as he said it, the whole church just lit up, smiles. And then he was able to come back to our church and return those greetings to us. And I've had the privilege of doing the same in our own state, but also in other countries. You go to Cuba, and the very first time I get to preach to these group of pastors, I want to say to, you, I say to them, brothers, I want you to know that Berean Baptist Church greets you. We pray for you guys constantly. And as soon as the translator translates what I just said, you just watch them light up. 
And I say, I will return their greetings when I come. And the first thing I do when I come back and stand in our pulpit is the churches in Cuba greet you. To go down to Chile in the Sovereign Grace Baptist Church and stand and preach in the pulpit of Alex Figueroa and to tell them, Berean Baptist Church greets you. And then they tell me, we pray for y'all's church all the time. I mean, that's just kind of become normal. I love life. Sometimes I'm walking down the street in Powder Springs and I get texts and, and Sam Gunnup in South Korea is texting me. And I'm like, man, I love my life. <laughs> and the privilege of having that communion through brothers in so many different places in all the world. It's a big deal because we're connected to something very, very big. And we're not just connected to our Baptist churches or fellow Baptist churches. We're connected to you know, gospel preaching, Presbyterian churches and that sort of thing, certainly. Um, so again, very thankful for that opportunity and the ability for us to be able to pray for these folks regularly. It's a big deal. Third and final, <clears throat> our prayers for God to send out laborers into his harvest field are cries that Jesus will establish his lampstands, that all will burn bright and clear with his truth among unreached people and language groups. That's what missions is. Uh, the guy who's taking the Great Commission class, what have we learned? How do you fulfill the Great Commission? You do evangelism and you plant churches. And you, write, and you train leaders, and you train elders, and, the, and those elders are installed, and you move on, you plant another church. And then when those elders are installed, you move another church until you have an association of churches, right? In another place that encourage one another and comfort one another. And that's true whether we're planting churches domestically or in a foreign context. But the idea here is who plants churches? Jesus plants the church. We can constitute a church, we can do the work we need to do for the church, but at the end of the day, the only one who can put his lampstand there is Christ himself. And that's our desire, that's our cry, that's our prayer. It begins, obedience to the Great Commission begins with our fervent daily prayers that we pray, Lord of the harvest, send out labors into your harvest field because the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And here's the thing, are those prayers offered in vain? If we don't pray them very often, or we don't pray them very fervently, we shouldn't expect God to answer them. But did Jesus tell us and command us to pray those things for a reason? Can we believe that there's going to be an answer to those prayers? The reality is, the mission is going to succeed. You say, how do you know that? I know it because of what the Revelation says. You know what I'm going to read. It's Revelation 5, verses 9 to 10. Great multitude gathered at the throne... Christ is seated upon it. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. There's effectual limited atonement. Definite atonement. Jesus didn't die to make people redeemable. He died to redeem people. And notice what it says, You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Where? Out of every tribe and tongue. And people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, if you're in the midst of persecution, and, you're, and Jesus tells you more persecution is about to come, doesn't it comfort you to be reminded, oh, wait a minute, we win. We win, and the mission Jesus has given us is going to succeed. Not by seeing every single person converted, but every one of his elect who were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, they are going to be converted. Because Jesus shed his blood for them and God in his time will give his effectual call and draw them irresistibly to Christ. What a comfort this book can be for us as we face the possibility, the very real prospect, that in our culture we may be facing persecution very soon. What a comfort to remember. Jesus is worth it. 
He has his eye on the churches. He's at work in the churches. And great is the reward if we will endure and overcome. So may God grant us grace to be faithful to the very end for his glory.